I'm Roger Baker, Executive Director of the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN, a global center of excellence for geopolitical intelligence and analysis. Learn how you can put geopolitics to work for your organization at rainnetwork.com. Welcome to the Beyond COVID podcast from RAIN Network. In this podcast series, David Lawrence, co-founder of RAIN, speaks with Dr. Fred Southwick, an infectious disease specialist at the University of Florida's College of Medicine, and Dr. Bill Lang, an expert in public health responses to biological incidents, about the current state of the COVID-19 pandemic. Let's listen in on this week's conversation. Fred and Bill, uh, thank you again for taking the time with us to give us an update, uh, not only on COVID, but other medical-related matters, what might be the new and the next. Uh, but under COVID, I assume no news or little news is good news. Uh, maybe you can just briefly uh, bring us up to speed. Sure. Well, as you said, we're not getting a whole lot of news, and that's for a couple of reasons. One is well, there isn't much news. The other is that people are tired of it. And, you know, the way news works, once people have have stopped paying attention, then they stop reporting on it. At the same time, however, over the past two to three weeks, maybe a month, we are seeing a bump in some evidence of COVID cases. Now, as we said from the beginning, cases does not equal impact. Uh, we're seeing more COVID in sewage samples. Um, there's certain places in the country and in other places in the world where they monitor sewage for for uh, volume of COVID antigen, uh, SARS-CoV-2 antigen, and there's it's it's increasing, um, not increasing dramatically, but it is up, and that goes along with something we're seeing clinically. Um, I personally, in the patients that I take care of, and in people that I, and other docs I work with, we're all seeing this kind of subjective number of increased cases. You know, no one has a real good feel for it, but it seems like we're seeing more but not people who are sick. We're not seeing people hospitalized. Um, Fred would probably have a better view on, are you seeing more hospitalizations? Yeah, Bill, at this point, we, we are not. And uh, the other thing I would say is that I too have been getting calls from friends about uh, uh, friends of theirs who have gotten COVID recently. So I've gotten two or three calls. So uh, just a uh, slight indication of that increase. And I did see, an epidemiology, epidemiologist who reviewed as much as they could find. And there is a slight uptick based on all the data, including the sewage data. Right. And so what what that means is COVID's not gone. But remember, and we've talked about this a long time ago, that is COVID evolving into just the fifth commonly circulating coronavirus? It acts much like the other coronaviruses do. It did have this this two year, two to three year period where it was novel and our bodies were not ready to deal with it. Well, now we are, and it's acting very much like um, the other the other four coronaviruses that commonly circulate in the world. So I think we're probably getting to a point where it's just background. Um, I think for this coming season uh, that 
we're going to have to think hard about do we vaccinate people, at least those who are at risk, with the newest bivalent vaccine, which is going to be different from the old bivalent vaccine. The new one is going to be two of the more recent strains. Now, what two they are is still not 100% clear. But um, as I've, I've kind of in the past on some of these, I've talked about my dad, 90, 91 years old. Um, I think I'm going to encourage him to get yet another dose of the newest bivalent vaccine. Um, but for other people, I, younger people, health, young healthy people, um, some of the concerns about the vaccine, some of the autoimmune concerns that we've seen, to me, even though they're not proven, we don't have good data on it, it's enough, enough to make me pause and to not, I'm not pushing hard on vaccination for young healthy people because when I'm seeing them get COVID, they're not getting they're not getting that sick. Bill, Bill, I agree exactly with your sentiments. The uh, the these strains are less virulent, no question about it. Uh, they don't cause test X-ray abnormalities as commonly. They don't cause lower oxygen levels that we saw so prominently with the, particularly the Delta variant. So uh, I but it is true among those that are elderly and have a lot of underlying diseases, even a mild disease can kick them over to the point that they they may actually end up in the hospital and could end up dying. So for that group, I agree with you, the vaccine may be helpful. The problem is that's the very group that doesn't respond well to the vaccine, and therefore it may not be as effective as it would be for younger people. Right, and, and for those who are keeping track at home, the um, the currently most commonly circulating vaccine uh, uh, variant, if you hear about it, is called Arcturus. That's XBB one point XBB point one point one six. Although there are two new uh, strains that are starting to circulate, EG five and XBB two point three. Nobody cares anymore. Um, you, you, people still do talk about Arcturus, but Arcturus is not new like Omicron was new. These are all variants of Omicron. Omicron is still the the main high level variant that is that is circulating. So there's also um, questions that have been raised, uh, particularly in the um, business community, uh, about any particular long-term effects that you're seeing, whether it's on the brain or physically, um, uh, as a result of uh, people having contracted COVID. And then um, separately, um, as you look at the data, um, are there any concerns that are growing out of uh, having taken the vaccine? Any long-term effects that you're seeing from people who were uh, vaccinated? Well, that's, and I kind of alluded to that a few minutes ago, that there are questions. Are there answers? No, but there are questions about do some people have some autoimmune um, effects from the vaccine? Even if that's true, it does appear that they decrease over time. Um, and the same, to some extent, goes with the long-term effects from the from the virus itself. If you remember a year ago, the commonly quoted number in the US was roughly one out of three people have long COVID after, after they get COVID. Um, and now the, the quoted number you get in the United States is 11%. Well, 
both could be true. It was 30 that had long COVID and the, their symptoms go away and now they're down to only one out of 10 that continues to have COVID symptoms. But on the other hand, the, the UK data said it was more like 3% that had it. So long COVID is probably, is probably real. Long COVID does not mean permanent COVID symptoms. Um, what's causing it? We don't know. There's still lots of people in, um, that are evaluating that. Some of these more recently concerning, I don't want to say more recently effect, but more recently concerning is some are some brain changes that have been noted. Um, and Fred and I were talking before we started that could very well be that's due to some of the vascular inflammation, the blood vessels getting inflamed that we saw with COVID early on. Um, those, if, as long as there's, you're not causing a stroke, which they have not, they generally do not, of course, uh, then that resolves over time. And I think that's what we're seeing with long COVID. It resolves over time. Yeah, I, I agree with Bill. What, what happens is the virus actually can infect the endothelium of the vessels and cause significant inflammation of the vessels. And it caused, that's what explained a lot of the coagulopathy, a lot of the uh, clotting that was going on that we saw, particularly in the earlier strains. So uh, that would, uh, it's a tremendous antigenic stimulus, this virus, and really just set off very profound inflammatory response. And in some people, we know that some people's inflammatory response isn't as well regulated, and they can, it can persist uh, after the stimulus has actually gone away. And I think that may be what's going on is a certain group of people have a, a hyper-reactive immune system, and then they continue to have a little bit of vascular irritation and inflammation that is leading to their symptoms, which eventually uh, does uh, smolder down and go away. Okay. And um, as you think about this, and, and Bill, I get the, uh, the point that there are some concerns or there, there's some reports, but are you guys seeing any actual evidence of what I'll refer to as, you know, long-term consequences, um, or is the FDA seeing that? Any concerns about the vaccines now, you know, years later? I, I saw um, a little report that's not formally written yet, suggesting, I think this is in New York City, uh, that there are some patients that get the vaccine that have a little bit of cognitive effect, uh, similar, and they sort of have a, a, a variant of the long COVID syndrome. And that's possible because the spike protein is a, is a, is a pretty profound inflammatory response. And you're trying to protect the, uh, get the individual to generate antibodies and cell-made immunity against the spike protein. So theoretically, you could see a little bit of inflammation. However, if you compare that what happens with a live viral infection, uh, the incidence is much lower and much milder. So the vaccine still comes out way, way ahead. And I think that's the important message here is, and you know, throughout this, I've not been, I've been a, a in favor of vaccines, uh, but I haven't been pushing them real, real hard because of some of these long-term questions. But as Fred said, with, with to me even, as a va I don't want to say I'm a vaccine doubter, but I'm a, I'm a vaccine, I think about, the, think about it a little bit. The fact is, though, that it did stop this 
virus from becoming, from continuing to be such an impact on the world. The vaccines made that difference. So yeah, now that we're getting to the point where the virus may have attenuated, we've got this large herd, herd immunity. If you're talking about people who are not at huge risk, then I say, we're not sure on the vaccines, what long-term effects they may have. So I'm a little bit cautious. But for anyone at risk, and where we came, and for where we came from, the vaccines have been a, a huge positive for humanity. I agree, Bill. Exactly. And just to build on that point, um, there was an announcement uh, within the last week uh, concerning a vaccine for children to deal with a very, uh, a very serious respiratory uh, condition. Obviously, um, you guys are not pediatricians. But I don't know whether you have any uh, thoughts about um, that vaccine. But it, I, I do want to build on earlier comments that you made a number of podcasts ago. That um, one of the, if you can use the term benefit of COVID, is that it did seem to be ushering in uh, new approaches and new technologies for effective vaccines uh, to cover a wide range of uh, illnesses. So there's, uh, I don't want to call it a uh, revolution, but uh, certainly there's been a great deal of innovation in that. And so I don't know whether um, this recent announcement uh, concerning an RSV vaccine for kids um, is an example of, you know, the new technology, or can you give us any perspective on it and how we should think about it? Well, the the most recent activity has been the approval of RSV vaccines for older adults. Um, RSV is the most is is the most common significant um, cause of respiratory hospitalizations in children. Most kids get RSV and it's they've got a cold, uh, maybe a bad cold, but they've got a cold. Um, the problem is that RSV is now that with after we've immunized most seniors against. Uh, pneumonia, RSV is actually, and we have the flu vaccines out there, and we have flu treatments out there, um, RSV is actually becoming a very significant uh, killer of older adults. Um, so there's this, the just uh, CDC just approved the RSV vaccine uh, last month for older adults. Um, uh, the, for kids, the this is when we're getting into one of those big issues that we do, we vaccinate all children for a disease that only affects a very small number of them. And it's like, how many vaccines are we gonna put into kids? But then there's also the way that older adults get RSV is they catch it from their grandkids. Um, I know I'm generalizing a little bit, but they catch it from kids. So if we can decrease RSV generally across the board, is that really gonna help everybody, especially these older adults. I think the fact that we have the RSV vaccine for older adults is going to decrease the pressure on uh, insisting on RSV vaccines for kids. It is not currently on the list of recommended vaccines for children. You know, the other thing that uh, I'm, you know, I, I'm not following this, I'm, I'm not a pediatrician, but there's a, now also a monoclonal antibody uh, that's protective against the uh, RSV that was just released and be, can be given to infants. So that that sort of fits with all the monoclonal antibodies we used uh, for COVID. So uh, I think there is probably one of the 
uh, benefits of actually COVID of using that same strategy. I don't think there's any uh, mRNA vaccines to, uh, for RSV as yet. Uh, do you know, Bill? Not that I know of, no. Yeah. No. So, and, and remember, the FDA has approved it for adults, and the, the thought is that after it's approved for adults and they've got good experience on the older adults, then they will move the age requirement down or the age recommendation down to considering children and infants. But we're not there. It's starting with adults, not the right. older groups, not the younger groups. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, under the category of new and next, and this has come again from the business community, um, there's increasing concerns about hospital-related infections, um, the fungal infections and um, sort of things that are resistant to antibiotics. Fred, I don't know what your experience has been, you know, directly um, in the hospital or tracking this as part of your scholarly efforts, but I'd like, love to hear from you and Bill uh, whether this is something that people should be concerned about, at least aware of, um, and sort of what's on the horizon? Well, I can tell you, we actually had a grand rounds where our uh, infection control expert uh, discussed it at our hospital, and we have seen an increase in Canada Oris. And uh, we think it's coming, it's really a, uh, coming from equipment and contamination of equipment, and uh, it's in patients who are weak, with a weakened immune state, who have been on broad spectrum antibiotics, uh, they are at risk of getting this infection. And it does, the other thing that selects for it is the azoles, fluconazole, uh, selects for this, or uh, it's resistant to the azoles. So if you're thinking about a fungal infection, uh, you and it's possible candidorous, you should you cannot use any of the azoles to uh, treat it. So I think this is, I mean, this is the, the age-old battle of medicine that as fast as we uh, can invent new medicines, new resistance pops up. And, you know, there's lots of concern about, I, I don't mean to get political here, but I, maybe I, this might be perceived that way a little bit. There's lots of resistance to the drug companies making lots of money, but it, to some extent they turn that money back into research against these uh, diseases such as uh, hospital-acquired infections that may not be huge money makers for them, but at the same time, if we don't have the uh, money being made on other medications, we don't have money to put into these less profitable, but at the same time, critical medications for uh, treating things like uh, uncommon hospital-acquired infections. Uh, increasingly, fungal infections are becoming difficult to treat, and we're, the only way to address it is going to be new research. Okay. Um, Bill, I know you're constantly scanning the horizon, and uh, Fred, you're in touch with your broad network of experts. Is there anything um, from an uh, infectious disease standpoint that people should be uh, keeping an eye on, uh, particularly as we go through the summer, approach the fall, people are coming back to work, et cetera? Well, the one uh, episode we've had in Florida, in the Tampa, St. Petersburg area, is uh, ma malaria. 
uh, Vivax malaria has actually shown up. And it was not in a traveler. It was in someone that was just in that area that lived in that area, not left that area, they got it. Which tells you that some of the mosquitoes in that area now are carrying uh, Vivax malaria. And that's not unexpected given the increased temperatures and humidity and the uh, really helps the mosquitoes to flourish and to spread these, these uh, parasites. Um, but people, people should keep in mind, though, that in up until the early 1900s, that Washington, D.C. was considered yeah, by the right. British Foreign Service to be a hardship post because of the amount of malaria <laughs> that was present in Washington, D.C. Um, so it's, it's, malaria is not, is, is, this is not new to the United States. The United States, from, from essentially the Mason-Dixon line south, is a very hospitable climate for malaria. We haven't had malaria because we have, you know, thanks to thanks to the army and um, uh, Walter Reed, you know we have very and Gorgas, uh, William Gorgas. We have excellent mosquito control mechanisms that are in place throughout the country. But when you get huge volumes of mosquitoes, um, you know, depending on changes in weather, changes in immigration patterns, um, you you might have more malaria than we used to have and that's gonna at some point it's gonna spill over and we're gonna get it so it's something people need to watch for and if you've got unusual symptoms don't just assume it's a it's flu um, it, it could be malaria and I think a lot of clinicians just need to have a, a little bit higher uh, suspicion fortunately it is vivax malaria vivax malaria does not typically kill people it just makes them pretty sick um, we're not seeing falciparum which is often what I shouldn't say often but it can be fatal yeah, Bill, I think that probably the heavier rains increase the amount of standing water and therefore has made uh, the mosquito control a little more difficult. One other organism that I just saw a case in the hospital that's showing up on the Gulf Coast is Vibrio vulnificus. And Vibrio is a bacteria that likes brackish water. And what's happened is all of the rivers that are flooding into the Gulf are a higher volume, and as a consequence, the salinity of the Gulf has gone down, and that is, favors the growth of this Vibrio organism. And what happens is if you get a little cut, uh, that allows the bacteria to get into the skin, and it takes off very, very rapidly. Then 24 hours, you can have a very severe infection, very much like group A strep does. And uh, we saw, I saw one fisherman who just scraped his, uh, his shin and then was wading in, in the Gulf waters. Uh, and uh, he, uh, 24 hours later, developed pain in his leg and he decided to delay coming to the hospital for two days. Well, unfortunately, he lost his leg. He had required uh, above the knee amputation because his leg was completely necrotic. So. It's a real worry, and we saw a lot of this during the hurricane season in the panhandle because you've got a lot of brackish water. People are waiting around. They get cut by uh, lumber or other debris that's in the, in the area. So I think that's another big concern. And the main thing, reason I, the point is, 
if you get any redness or you know suggestive of an early cellulitis do not wait immediately see be seen in the emergency room because if you do wait uh, the consequences can be very very severe yeah and I, I I can attest to the same thing with my patients I've got a lot of patients who are international travelers and they're they go diving in places they get scraped on on coral or anything else especially in as as Fred's saying brackish areas and the next thing you know you got a very bad infection so oftentimes we'll treat these people if we see them early enough we'll consider treating them um, sometimes sometimes er, very early, just a little bit yeah, of redness, and we just don't take chances. That's very smart. That's the right thing to do. All right, so I'm going to just press you guys in closing. Uh, tell me, uh, when you're swimming in brackish waters, what do you look for in terms of an infection? And, you know, if you've, particularly if you've been um, in mosquito-prone areas, uh, what are the symptoms of this form of malaria that people should be aware of? Well, Go ahead, Bill. <laughs> I'll, ta I'll take the malaria one. You can take okay, the Vibrio sounds, one. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> the, the, malaria, if you have flu-like symptoms, so you know, headache, high fever, um, that's that in and of itself should be, and you're in an area where mosquitoes are prevalent, um, th that should be enough to... to uh, provoke going to get seen. One of the big issues, though, is that clinicians today, especially those who do not have military or international experience, don't tend to recognize malaria. Um, you've, it's, it's, it's not obvious because it looks like so many other things. You've got to have an index of suspicion based on where you've been, um, based on the symptoms, to just do the test. And fortunately today, there is an easy screening test uh, but even that's a little bit of a problem because the screening test has very, very high sensitivity, but low specificity. So you need to confirm it with a, an actual blood test um, rather than just the, a PCR test. Yeah, and with regards to Vibrio, uh, I recommend that you, if you have any cuts that are open, you should not be waiting in brackish water. Uh, if your skin's intact, you're safe. And what would happen is usually within 12 and if once you if you do wade in brackish water and you have see you have a little cut immediately take a shower when you get out of the water or when you as soon as you get home and uh, scrub yeah scrub really clean off to reduce the bacterial load and that was another thing he didn't he didn't bother to uh wash his legs afterwards unfortunately um so that's important and then if you get any pain any redness at all and it, don't wait even before because it, a fever may come a day or two later. Um, you should immediately seek medical attention. Fred, quick definition of brackish water, just so there's no ambiguity. Uh, well, brackish water is just salt water that's been diluted with fresh water. Okay. And that's what that's what happens in the mouths of rivers. Right. Um, where uh, it, you know the mouth of the Mississippi, the mouth of any of the uh, large rivers. Uh, we we worry about right. Florida is particularly prone. Has a number of areas that fit that uh, definition. All right, I'm going to conclude obviously with thanks um, for the continued insights. Thanks for staying on top of things. Keep us informed, and then I'll give you a editorial comment. Uh, uh, Bill, Fred, I still believe Washington D.C. is a hardship assignment for anyone. 
<laughs> and and uh, I'll quote President Obama, uh, who very quickly went gray uh, during his presidency. Uh, I'm not sure he gave this in an interview, but it was uh, someone picked up on it, recorded that uh, he wondered out loud why anyone would want uh, the job for a second term. Okay, so <laughs> it remains a hardship assignment. All right. Guys, thank you uh, so, so much for your continued uh, insights and professionalism. Right. Thank you, David. Thank Thank you. you. Bye-bye. Bye. This is the Rain Insights podcast, which is part of the Rain Insights series, comprised of both real world and virtual events, offering unique practical perspectives from Rain's leading experts in risk management. To learn more, please visit us at rainnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E network.com. Thank you for listening.